We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. everyone and welcome to a new episode of Archeo Animals and with you as always it's me Simona Falanga and my co-host Alex Fitzpatrick okay and today we'll be talking to you about I guess the last farm animal that we kept meaning to talk to you about and we finally got round to it despite Alex's deep, deep hatred of this poor species it's uh, okay I don't I don't hate pigs it's the teeth, but we'll get to that in a second. But yes, we are talking about pigs today. Right, so about pigs, what, um, what we're going to tell you about today is probably go, as for all domesticated species, tell you a little bit about the history and the domestication of pigs, and perhaps what we can learn about ancient populations using pig remains recovered from archaeological sites. And we'll be talking a little bit about the morphology of uh, pig skeletal remains and maybe try, attempt to compare it, like, and compare, contrast it with wild ancestor, the wild boar. And then we're going to look at some case studies. So, yeah, same old thing that we usually do with these episodes. Um, so, yeah, let's start with uh, kind of the history of domestication. So pigs, like kind of everything else we've talked about, seem to have been domesticated originally in the Near East and in China, right? It's a pretty, it is pretty much sort of a copy-paste for every single domesticate that we get today. Again, a bit more, more copy-pasting, as is the case for pretty much all of our domesticated species. It's likely that not all of our you know, current domestic animals descend from the one domestication attempt somewhere around the world, but they're probably the result of several domestication attempts that were carried out across the globe over a large amount of time. So in the case of pigs specifically, it has been shown by DNA research that there, there were at least two domestication attempts, so uh, like uh, one in China and a separate one in Anatolia. But some papers have also shown that despite animals domesticated in these regions were brought into Europe, um, wild boars were also domesticated within Europe itself. So it's a domestication free-for-all. As are basically all of them, just domestication happening, usually uh, more Eastern than here, but kind of just happening at different times in different places, uh, which I always find really interesting, to be honest. It's not just one thing. It's like a chain of events happening, and that's how we get this one domesticated species. But it's something like really interesting because, of course, you wouldn't think like that. You know, a population would have attempted to domesticate an animal. It would work first time. Okay, excellent. We now have pigs. It was more like you know several populations trying over a number of generations and centuries, and some attempts went well. Some may not have gone so well. And so then you get all these different regions worldwide that have attempted the same thing. And it's something really interesting because sort of it all leads back to sort of human nature where we sort of all do the same thing. Or like if you think you've just had a really brilliant idea, chances are someone's already had it before. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, definitely. Why did we domesticate the wild boar? Um, I think one of the main things of that you get uh, the you can interpret from a site that has pig remains is food. Uh, we obviously were using pigs for food, and let's be honest, it's probably easier just to have these pigs domesticated and available uh, than just going out and hunting wild boar, which apparently is a terrifying animal. Um, I've never seen a wild boar personally, but for all accounts, uh, it sounds like it's a pain to hunt them. Uh, you know, wild boar can get pretty terrifying because uh, where I'm from, it's well, it's not technically an invasive species as if it, it's native to the island. But I think because there's no natural predators there anymore, they've uh, multiplied to an extent where they move closer and closer to inhabited centres. And while no animal is nasty by nature, they are easily start startled and they will charge you. So... Of course, domesticating wild boar may prove an easier way to get your food, while pig can also not always be the, the friendliest. Pigs can do pretty nasty stuff to people and each other as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've seen uh, images of pigs chewing on, well, they'll chew on anything from what I understand. So, uh, and like I said, we'll get to the teeth. Uh, we'll have a whole diatribe, as always, about the teeth. Uh, but yeah, so finding pig remains on a site, obviously, if we're looking at food, if we're finding things like butchery marks, if we're finding burning, things like that. And uh there's also uh, different, depending on what your dietary choices are, uh, you may find yourself with uh, very specific uh, types of pig remains. Simona, can you talk a little bit more about that? Of course. <laughs> so again, bringing it back to, guess what? The Romano-British period. Uh, you do have higher incidences of the suckling pig, which of course is a very young juvenile pig which was a delicacy in the mediterranean at the time so when the romans settled in britain they brought this custom with them so for example like finding very young pig bones may be an indicator that a site of romano-british date would have been more romanized than somewhere that didn't produce juvenile pig bones even though, again, you should be looking at context because, of course, depending on where you find it, it might just be a juvenile pig that has died because reasons. And then again, I think it was as well the Romans, correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, uh, but you do find neonatal pig remains sort of under the threshold or floor, floor surface of a structure. So it could be food, it could be ritual, it could be an animal that just died because they Let's face it, they do do that. It's always a troll when we don't know, let's be real. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly but surely coming to grips with the fact that the joke is right and that everything we don't know is ritual. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in the middle of writing up my PhD and I'm very tired of trying to interpret everything. But uh, speaking of not like weird non-normative stuff uh one of the things that i find really interesting about pigs uh especially in comparison to some other domesticated species we've talked about is that because of how needy i guess they are uh, as animals to keep uh we can still we can learn a lot about you know how people in the past were probably taking care of these pigs 
just based on the remains we find. So pigs uh, require a lot of space and a lot of resources to raise. So, you know, they would need more like orchards and woodland areas rather than just open fields that say, you know, your, sh- your sheep and your cattle will need. Uh, so in a lot of ways, not only are you uh, learning about the kind of domesticated animals that were on these sites, but you can also kind of get an idea of what the overall environment is of this site. If you're finding all these pig bones, you can probably guess that the area around it was more like woodland. Oh, absolutely. And you also get even more of an idea of um, why so the pig was such a popular domesticate, especially later in the Roman period. I wouldn't say that pigs are necessarily easy to keep, but as you've mentioned, uh, they do have an appetite for pretty much everything under the sun. So their upkeep might be in ways easier than with other domesticates. And while it's true that they do require a lot of space, um, if you keep them within an orchard or, a, or especially in a bit of woodland, you don't necessarily need to work the land for them so that you can have your farm going and then you can just keep I've, I've got this woodland that i'm not really using and i can't be bothered to chop down all the trees and sort all of that so i'm just going to keep, keep pigs in there and then after a year i've got sausages so in a way sort of if your diet is sort of inclined that way sort of a no-brainer i also want to point out that i haven't eaten dinner uh during this recording so the idea of sausages is absolutely killing me no tristan do not yell at me for not having dinner it's been a very Alex, long day we've gone over this I know. so many times i know it's been a very long day so many times um is it just sausages or is it also bacon i mean is it bacon eaten at this time as well you know lots of bacon it's like really crispy and really salty like you know it's flamed so it's just like oh it's just like perfect like crispiness is that kind of what we were eating Tristan, I'm going to set your house on fire, first of all. But I think Simona can answer that better than I can. I'm not sure whether there's actual sort of archaeological evidence for bacon as such. But salt preservation was, of course, very popular at the time, like in, in ancient times as well. So it wouldn't be outside the realms of possibility that if they made a particular cut of pork and then they preserved it with salt and spices you would end up with something that's very akin to bacon so sort of but not quite i guess i want bacon so bad that's all right i'm gonna take away all the hunger you may have with some boring facts about the roman taxation system and how that pertains to the rise in the number of domesticated pigs from archaeological sites Oh, thank oh, God. Yes, yes. my favorite. <laughs> We're I so happy. Because there's some research that's been carried out by King so in 1978, and he was looking at sort of the proportion of um, pig remains found in archaeological sites in the Romano-British period. And now an increase in the amount of pig remains has been sort of determined as of the late Romano-British period. And some of the hypotheses that have been thrown there uh, are some changes that have taken place in the Roman taxation system. Uh, so, for instance, you do get... So, the first one taking place in the 3rd century, uh, where, like, the way the land was taxed has changed, which in return may have led to farmers using more of their land. So, if they had some, you know, unkept woodland or anything that belonged to them, 
they would have brought more pigs in to keep in the woodland so to to get as much of the land productive as possible or just so either you know just leaving them in the woodland or converting it into an orchard and then in the fourth century you do get another change in the taxation system uh to be specific it's in the capitatio which was a roman poll tax um which from that point onwards started to include livestock so of course you were charged extra tax per bit of livestock that you owned so all of a sudden it became much more profitable in the small sort of uh British farmers' eyes to keep, say, cattle and pigs, because you would get a lot more meat out of them than, say, a sheep or other type of livestock. But in the eyes of the taxman, that would only count as one. So, yeah, these are some of the hypotheses um, that have been made about why you do see more pig in the later Romano-British period. Even though, of course, an obvious one would be that over as centuries went by sort of uh localities were getting more and more romanized as roman um roman as pigs were a delicacy in the roman period it would have been more and more common to find them in settlements and thus in the archaeological sites that we uncover and how quick was this change like are we talking like decades or are we talking like you know half a century how quick was the like kind of reaction and can we actually even gauge that kind of speed from the sites? Well, like the um, the change in the tax law. Yeah, the change yeah. in the tax law and then the change in what I would assume is then the assemblages we'd find on sites. I'm honestly not sure because like what I've read about it uh, wasn't as detailed, so I'm not sure whether that's something that has been looked into. But that could then be a, like a PhD topic. Yeah, for Alex, perhaps. I don't think she wants another one. <laughs> Why would you do this to me? But I will say that it might it might be something that you could see if you looked at uh, genetic markers. But to be completely honest, as someone who just read a bunch of uh, articles on genetic markers today, uh, it all sounds like magic to me. Of course, one thing that we forgot to mention about uh, sort of like what can pig remains tell you about archaeological site in terms of uh, the substance approaches that the sort of population in question would have had is, of course, the age that the pig would have been butchered. Because, of course, um, back sort of in, uh, in the past, and to an extent it's still the case today, pigs are not kept until they're fully adults. They are actually butchered at the sub-adult stage. Um, which, of course, uh, is getting younger and younger as the centuries are going by. Because as pigs sort of reach this subadult stage, I mean, they will grow a little bit after this, but not enough to make it economically valuable for people to keep feeding them. Because sort of the meat, the return in terms of higher meat con content will be quite minimal. So I think in terms of um, sort of like in the in archaeological terms, I think we're looking at around or under the one year of age. But you see how over the centuries that's gone, so that slaughtering age has gone down. And I think now, like the, depending on the breed, we are looking at about six months for butchering pigs. Because of course, now we've developed breeds that accumulate a lot of meat and a lot of fat in a much shorter amount of time. Wow, really? Like just six months? That seems wild. <laughs> 
I guess it depends on the breeds as well. So like I think six months would be the case for a lot of the commercial breeds. And then you have some of the heritage breeds that uh, you will need to keep sort of closer to one year of age to gain enough meat content to sort of make it economically valuable to viable to slaughter. And I guess then you would also see that in um, the ages of the uh, pig remains on these sites. And I think that just kind of loops back into just how much you can actually uh, learn about a site just based on one species. And I think that's been a recurring theme in all these domesticated animal episodes we've been doing. Uh, and I think it's also just a really important uh, lesson to learn about archaeology in general is that you know it seems like it's very like oh you have pigs that's the only thing you know but clearly you can learn so much about the the surrounding environments and uh the kind of uh, methods that people in the past would be applying to keeping and raising and eventually uh, slaughtering these animals which i think is really cool and apparently even Simona could figure out about the taxation system from Rome, which, yeah, sure. And uh, with a reminder on why zoo archaeology is indeed a very, very relevant discipline within archaeology, we bid you farewell until the next segment. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% percent off your first three months or go to z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r dot com and use the code animals pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. All right, and we are back with Archeo Animals, and now we're going to get to the part of the episode where I get to complain because we are talking about the morphology of the pigs. Uh, but before we just kind of... Uh, go to me complaining about teeth, we should probably talk about, you know, the rest of the pig. So, Simona, how would you characterize pig bones in general when it comes to telling the difference between, you know, pig bones versus any other kind of mammal? I guess sort of like one of the main pointers to look at that sort of like came across um, like mine in terms of domesticates would be the metapodials. Because of course, um, you'll have both cattle and sheep that, only have the one 
and horse that only have the one sort of uh, one set of like one metacarpal per side and one metatarsal per side, while the pig pigs would have multiple because they, they have um, multiple toes. I forget exactly how many they have. Is it four or five metapodials? Yeah, it's something like that. Also, I just realized that I've never thought about pigs having multiple toes, and I don't know if that's kind of upsetting or not. Don't, don't, I've never really referred to like metapodials as just toes, you know? Don't, don't toe shame the pigs. Wait, how does that work? Is that like um, doing like the whole like Star Trek Spock sign or like, because I, I know they have trotters and I thought they only have two. So is it like all clumped together or how does that work? Because I think they've got the two main ones, but then I think they've got at least another one or two on either side. So before, I think, I believe it's four toes in total. Huh. No. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> am I gonna have to Google how many toes do pigs have? I should know this. Um, I thought I was in like the pre, like the preparation for the podcast. Four Listen, do toes. You think? Do you sit and think about it? Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I could I couldn't get to sleep last night because I was thinking about how many toes pigs have, and it is indeed four. So yeah, they have the two main sort of part of the trotter that we do tend to normally associate with pigs, but they will also have two smaller toes on either side. So it is four, which will make for four metapodials compared to other domesticates in terms of livestock that will only have the one. And I think, I mean, this is a very broad statement to make, but of course, this is the kind of statements I make on this podcast. Um, I always kind of... uh, associate pig bones specifically the uh you know the long bones to be for the most part shorter a little bit more robust than other mammal bones it's just i don't know that's just how i always think about it in my head i think a lot of archaeologists probably agree with this but um you kind of end up having these little shortcuts in your brain because when you work with so many different animal bones and that's always well kind of like rule of thumb I have for pigs. So the way like some of the bones are almost twisted, if that makes sense. The shape is a bit more twisted. No? Yeah, no, definitely. No, actually, I 100% agree with that because I'm just thinking about, again, some of the long bones. And yeah, it's like, it is very kind of twisted and not like a, you know, Joker twisted because he's very twisted. And that's topical, I just realized. I guess the best indicator so to identify, yes, we do have a pig here, are Alex's favourites, the the, act, the teeth themselves. Sh- shall I talk about teeth? Let me let me let me do my thing first, and then we can go into the more educational part where Simona explains it better. But here's the thing, and I've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, pig pig teeth are a blessing and a curse because on one hand. They're very, very um, particular. Uh, I feel like, especially compared to other domesticates, other species that you're very that you will commonly find on archaeological sites, and it, they're really easy to pinpoint um, and tell the difference. And the downside is it's because they are so disgusting to look at. Specifically, uh, molars uh, from a pig 
they kind of look like human teeth, but if you like put it in a microwave and then they like exploded like a popcorn kernel, that's how I always like to think about it. Um, they're horrible. They make me feel nauseous when I look at them. Uh, and also they are very, very similar to human teeth. And I speak from experience because I'm not going to name names of who may or may not have gone through this bag, but I was looking at what was supposed to be human bones and it turns out someone had mixed up a couple of pig teeth and pig jawbone uh, bits in it. Just saying, not putting anyone on blast, but yeah. Although, to be fair, like if you if you zooarchaeology is not your thing, and listen, are you? It's an easy enough mistake to make if you're not trained in animal remains. You will see something that looks a bit like a popcorn, and think a human happens. I feel like you can better explain though, teeth, because I will just start uh, complaining more about how awful they are. <laughs> okay, um, so pigs, uh, I've got a tooth type that is called, uh, so they have brachiodont teeth, um, which are very typical of omnivores. And so the best way to recognize them, aside from yeah, them looking like uh, popcorn, is that they're the molars especially are quite wide and low crowned which also like makes them look very similar to human teeth except the sort of the um, occlusal view is a lot more well popped for lack of a better word so what makes them look like popcorn they're convex uh in the occlusal view and then they'll just have their their incisors which are not human-like, and they also have canines, which are found in both males and females. But usually a good way, I'm not sure if I'm remembering it 100% correctly, but a good way to tell sort of male and female aside is, aside from the size itself of the canines, is that the, the male ones keep growing throughout their lifetime and thus are open at the root, while the females will have them closed because sort of like they will erupt as they are and sort of stay that size for the rest of their lives. Yeah, basically. And um, you do make up the point too. It's it's really only the molars look similar to humans. All the other teeth are very um, faunal, I guess, if that's a, a good way to describe them. But thank God you're on this podcast so that you can uh, explain the things that I don't want to talk about because I hate them so much. <sighs> yeah, but while we're talking about pig teeth, uh Pig teeth, well, the recovery of teeth, is also a useful way to differentiate uh, between a domestic pig and a wild boar. Because I guess one of the most reliable ways to tell the difference between the two species is the measurement of the third molar. Biometrics, baby! <laughs> the other thing I was reading so much about today. Uh, but yeah, um, just as a, a bit of a... Um... A quick reminder, if you don't remember, because I think we might have just talked about it in a previous episode, uh, maybe even my first episode, but biometrics are basically just kind of a way to uh, take measurements of different parts of a skeleton of an animal. And uh, by comparing it to other kind of set measurements we have, you can kind of sort of tell, uh, you know, uh, the difference between, say, a domestic pig and a wild pig. Uh, so we have a lot of metrical ways to do that. As Simona just said, we have the measurements of the M3, the third molar. Um, and there's also a couple other metrics that we can use, uh, you know, uh, the humerus, the astragalus, 
scapula. Is there anything else that I'm missing? I'm honestly not sure. I think those you mentioned are the ones that are believed to be the most reliable at present. But then, of course, what if you get a pig blob or hybrid? Ooh. Well, then you you're, then you just put the, the bones down and go away and, and don't figure it out. At least that's something I would do. And then uh, <laughs> I just realized I just rattled off a bunch of uh, different things and then didn't explain what they are. So <laughs> um, the metrics of uh, long bones and things like that, so like hum- like the humerus, which I think we all know. But the astragalus, if you don't know, is a bone that is part of the foot. And it's one of, I think it's one of Simona's favorite uh, bones, if I'm not mistaken. They, they look like little toy cars. They're pretty cute. <laughs> they are extremely, extremely cute. And uh, I think the other one I mentioned was the scapula, which is your shoulder bone. So that's just metrics. It's uh, something that I find very complicated. It's, again, a lot of measuring. And I think the validity of a lot of it is still kind of up in the air. It's a pretty good way to get. But Alex, you, you 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 get to revel in the joy of having three people measure the same bone and get three different measurements. No, I don't want that. And also it has to do with numbers and I hate numbers. But <laughs> yeah, so biometrics is, um, it's helpful, definitely helpful. I think it's still kind of up in the air of how valid it is, uh, which is why we have uh, non-metrical approaches to discovering the difference between wild and domestic pigs. Yeah, so I guess one thing that you could be looking at is the age at death, because as we've discussed previously, uh, pigs would get butchered sort of around the the same age group where you'd be getting the most uh, meat content per minimal effort, while wild boars sort of, well, it depends on what you're doing. Sometimes as a younger individual, sometimes it's slightly older. Uh, you won't get as much of a consistency in terms of age group uh, compared to what you'd get with domestic pigs. Or then you can look at geographical context as well, because there's parts of the world where wild boar is a native, but pigs, domesticated pigs were brought in. So chances are, if you find sort of suet remains on your archaeological site, it's more than likely that they came from a domesticated specimen rather than a wild boar. There's also other things, there's a type of analysis that you could be looking into. So the linear enamel hypoplasia being one of them, which is is used on humans as well. Because sort of if you experience extreme levels of stress as you're growing, so as your teeth sort of your adult dentition is forming, uh, when they eventually erupt, they will present a series of lines especially on the incisors. And uh, it can actually be pretty specific with them because they form a certain developmental stages of the tooth that, again, as I said, they form a very specific sort of age stages. You'll be able to pinpoint when the insult to the organism actually happened. So then you could be using that with pigs. But then again, it won't necessarily mean that if an animal has ex- uh, experienced extreme stress or growing up, uh, it meant that it was a wild animal that perhaps didn't get enough to eat because it could well have been also a domesticated animal that perhaps wasn't being raised according to the greater standards of welfare. So there's a bit of hit and miss there. And, and just a silly question, because I love asking those. If you brushed uh, a pig's teeth, uh, would you be able to kind of like mess up with the aging of it? Would that work? Brush the teeth? 
Like if it, okay, but, but more seriously, if like if a pig had access to like certain diets, would that kind of possibly affect it, or are pigs so kind of like able to eat anything? It doesn't really. It kind of averages out. I guess it depends because if uh, the pig was fed on a diet that was almost exclusively based off starchy food and sugary foods, it will get some form of tooth decay. So brushing its teeth would prevent all of that. Uh, I'm not sure necessarily do much in terms of uh, stopping the wear that you see on the teeth. Because I guess what you're looking at sort of when you're aging an animal or, or a person for that matter, based on the dentition, is um, how much the tooth has been worn. But then, of course, like there's only so far that method can take you because diet also has an impact on uh, how quickly your teeth wear down. So, of course, like even if we talk about humans today, our teeth wear down a lot slower, or at least in the West, they wear down a lot slower than they would have done in the past because we eat a lot of processed food, which uh, incidentally also comes with a lot of tooth decay. So... Um, Someone like if you compared uh, someone aged 30 now and age 30 uh, in the British Iron Age, their teeth would have worn down a lot quicker. So I guess, yeah, brushing the teeth would help prevent tooth decay, but not, not necessarily stop the wearing of your teeth. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, brushing your teeth does absolutely nothing. Um, and then, <laughs> the, you know, just... Just calling out my dentist now. Uh, stop saying that I need to keep going and getting fillings in. My teeth hurt and I can't afford it. Anyway. Because oh, uh, if, if you don't brush your teeth, you get tooth decay, which may develop into an abscess. And that's very painful. Don't do that, kids. Why would you say that to me? <laughs> anyway, probably the more the most... I guess, uh, defining way to look at the differences between wild domestic pigs is ultimately uh, genetic markers, which is something that's kind of, you know, more recent in terms of archaeological science uh, progress, uh, using stuff like ancient DNA, which we've talked about on this podcast before, uh, you can kind of look and see, you know, the different uh, genes that would flag up and, um, Depending on what genes you're looking at, you will be looking at, you know, a domesticated pig or a wild boar. And again, it sounds like complete magic to me. Um, but, you know, it's really helpful. Um, and it's especially good when you're looking at populations of, say, 30 to 50 feral hogs. See, I did it. I did the meme. No one can tell me otherwise. Well I did it. I did all of that okay. for the stupid meme. <laughs> <sighs> we had to, we have to mention it come on like it's it's the op it's the episode on it we i uh, we have never mentioned a meme on this podcast and we never will oh yeah sure that's uh, that's the truth i'm not sure i'm familiar with that okay so basically i'll do i'll do a rundown really 30 second rundown so basically somebody on twitter asked right oh it was so weird it was so weird it's this question about like why would you need an assault rifle? And their question is like, well, how would I deal with 30 to 50 feral hogs that would come into the garden in three to five minutes to attack my children? <laughs> it was just so weirdly specific and odd. It became a meme. Yeah, and I just realized we will need that uh, explanation because I'm sure people who listen to this podcast in a month or two from now will not remember what that meme is. Oh, things go so quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, we also suffer. Like, I suffer from being very online 
So same. Help. Yeah. Uh, Simona is yeah, blessed. Sort of the, <laughs> yeah. So the opposite of that. I'm sort of uh, sometimes I feel like I live in the cave where all the squirrels of Britain live, which is why you've never seen one. Oh, sick burn. Wow. Anyway, maybe we should take a break and we'll explain a bunch of other online beams to Simona uh, in the meantime and not talk about how I've never seen a squirrel in the UK. So, yeah. See you after this break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back with Archeo Animals. We are talking about pigs this episode. And we are now at the part of the episode that I actually really like, which is the case studies where we get to talk about... What about the other parts? I mean, you know, they're mostly you talking about Roman stuff and explaining things better than I can. And then this one... Excuse me, what is your problem with the Roman taxation system? (laughs) I have a problem with the Romans. Yeah, that's, yeah. And to be fair, I also have a problem with the Roman taxation uh, system, mostly in that it seems very dry and boring. What the Romans have ever done for us? Oh, God. Uh, Just keep going. Just keep going. (laughs) Of course, Simone is going to stand up for the Romans. Uh, Monty Python reference, anyone? Anyone? Yeah, we... Yeah, yeah. No, that's Simone's attempt at a meme. You were doing so well, Simone. That, like, last burn was great. But then you've come out the door, like, (laughs) and you've swing and a miss. Just, Just stop supporting the Romans. Wow, things are getting real on this podcast. So let me let me ease us back into what we were talking about, and we can talk about uh, yet another uh, huge project that's going on. Uh, that's also really exciting. Um, so there's the I don't know. Do you pronounce it Sus One Hundred Project, or is it just S U S One Hundred Project? Do you know Simona? I would go with Sus based because I think that probably stands for the genus of pigs, or Suscrofa. Oh, yeah, duh. God. <laughs> anyway, so the Sus 100 project is a, a one of those really big uh, overarching projects that is looking at the selective breeding and uh, the kind of genetic and morphological variations uh, over 100 generations of pig, which is incredibly ambitious. Uh, But most of it is being done looking at a a collection of uh, pig remains that have been uh, kept. And uh, basically they're using DNA as well to kind of compare uh, these pig breeds with uh, wild boar populations. And through that, they're going to kind of try and see what are the human directed uh, selection pressures uh, on these specific pig breeds. I think it's really interesting in a way, because I think one of the main sort of aims of the research in seeing how quickly uh, sort of like the genetic markers uh, change sort of over a number of generations of imposing sort of some selective breeding pressures onto the animals. So then what they're using for this project, and they're focusing on German 
pig breeds. Uh, I feel like there's uh, two in particular, which I will butcher in a minute, if you pardon the pun. So it's the Deutsches Edelschwein and the Deutsches Landschwein that they're particularly looking at, and then they are comparing it to a sample of wild boar uh, remains. But that was just something is um really interesting because it's also it involves a combination of uh, morphological traits and DNA studies, just to see how quickly species adapt to exertion like um, selection pressure pressure that's been exerted from humans. So yeah, I guess that kind of this project should be answering the question that you had earlier, Tristan, in terms of you know how fast these kind of processes happen in terms of like how these uh, genes end up changing over time. And it's in process, uh, the, the project is uh, currently ongoing right now. So hopefully we'll see some really interesting uh, results from them soon. And uh, they're also on Twitter. So you should go check them out on Twitter. We'll have all of the links to the project as with all the other projects we're talking about in the show notes. Simona, do you want to talk about the next project? Another sort of big project that uh, heavily features big remains is the Stonehenge Riverside Project, which um, well, this particular part focuses on the excavation of Durrington Walls that, for those of you who are not aware, is believed to be whether people that built Stonehenge uh, were residing during the construction of the monument. And one interesting feature about the site is that we have an astonishing number of pig remains. Uh, these have been gone through by uh, Sarah Viner Daniels and Umberto Albarella from the University of Sheffield. And they've identified, so like 90% of the assemblage was actually made up of pig remains, which is uh, particularly astonishing for that time period. But not only that, what was really interesting about it is that you could see uh, the different ways in which, uh, well, not only pig, but also like other livestock were being cooked. Because uh, in a lot of the pig remains, you'd see sort of more extensive burning at either end of the bone, which would imply that they'd been roasted over a fire, sort of with um, the extremities not having much meat on them, getting most of the heat and thus sort of getting that taphonomic change in colour and consistency. Evidence of boiled pig remains were also found through ceramic analysis. Because then um, Oliver Craig and Lisa Marie Shalita of the University of York were actually looking at the residues on the ceramics. And they found, I think, about like 23% of um, the sample they've been looking through presented at pork fat in them. So we have we have some roasting, we have some boiling. Um, I think the, what uh, they've been looking at as well in terms of zooarchaeological analysis uh, was the teeth because um some of the teeth uh, of the um, pigs that have been recovered showed uh tooth decay to the way so one thing that left people wondering is that whether the animals were actually fattened with very starchy and sugary food like especially to get them fattened up for slaughter so that's really interesting yeah and also it's just interesting to see you know kind of consider the other parts of stonehenge uh which is a very i guess controversial topic among archaeologists some people like to say that it's you know a great icon others like to say it's a little overrated i might say it's overrated just saying 
But it's interesting to kind of think of the other facets of Stonehenge and one of them being what did the people who built it actually ate? And actually a question I just thought of, uh, Simona, is, you know, what do you think about the differences in the way pigs were probably prepared for consumption? Uh, Not necessarily mean, but I don't know. I just I never really thought about, you know, is there a kind of meaning or is it just, you know, a variety of pig dishes being eaten at what could be a feast? Well, I, mean, I guess it could be a variety of dishes, but then again, you would uh, cook different cuts of meat in different ways. Also, another thing that could uh, be, so especially if you've um, slaughtered an animal a little bit too late and the meat turns out being a bit on the stiff side, uh, you might want to actually boil it for longer as opposed to roast it, because otherwise that's going to make for a pretty dry dinner. So could be anything, really. There could be some sort of meaning to it, or just simply like people having a, a nice grand buffet of uh, different dishes. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's this was the reason why I thought of this. I think is more that I've I've never like specifically looked at a site as a zoo archaeologist to look at like feasting. It's always been kind of more of what the heck are they actually doing with any of these animals at all? But yeah, no, it seems like people the uh, builders at Stonehenge were eating really well, um, and I am dying inside talking about this because again, I've like, not eaten dinner a, yet. Another another thing that I just thought uh, thought of like, in terms of like sort of pig fat being found sort of in the residue of uh, cooking pots. Then of course all the fatty bits or the offcuts you might want to boil and make stock out of it. Just try and get every last bit of the meat out of it oh yeah of course duh exactly no that's probably uh yeah no (laughs) that's probably a a better explanation than anything i was thinking of but it's interesting to see kind of like all of those different um uses of pig represented in just one site yeah, no, it's interesting because it's um, as we've discussed, you see more and more pig remains sort of in the Romano-British period. So seeing such a high incidence of pig sort of so relatively early, it's uh, it's interesting. And speaking of cooking and eating pig, our last case study is uh, actually specifically on Bronze Age pig cooking. So this is is from the Rubicon Heritage excavation at. Uh, Tinryland? Is that how you say that? I'm I'm not a native speaker. You tell me. I'm I'm not. I'm I immigrated here. Anyway, so uh, so I I know this is the worst podcast ever. Tristan, how do you say that word? Tinryland. Wait, where is this? Tin? Where is Tinryland? Do you guys like? (laughs) I've never heard. Is it in the UK? I believe. I believe so. Right, let's have a look, <laughs> listeners. We're going to discover where Tinryland is. Should it's I probably Tinryland. Oh, wasn't no, it an Irish. island? It's, it's yeah, Ireland. It is Irish. Tinryland. Yeah, it's ah. probably Tinryland. Um. Yeah. Just don't don't land it. You know, like don't overpronounce land, and you'd be fine. But any <laughs> Irish listeners, I apologize if I've pronounced that. I'm from the north, so that's my excuse. Okay, so uh, if anybody knows how to pronounce this, please, you know, message the show. Anyway, so uh, Tinry, Tinry, Tin, oh my gosh, 
This <laughs> this, this Bronze Age cooking. site. Yes. <laughs> it's really it's actually really interesting because um, we were just talking about you know before the the Tinryland uh, saga we were talking about you know how do you. Uh, approach cooking uh, pigs. And this is a really good example of kind of how we figure that out. So from what I understand, uh, Simona, feel free to, as always, uh, correct me. Uh, it's a feature on the site uh, that they were excavating and they've been trying to figure out kind of how it was used to uh, cook pigs. And uh, we'll put a link again to this in the show notes, it's got an amazing illustration of what they kind of think of how it was used. Yeah, there's um, some interesting also like post-ex photos of the feature that you can look at to maybe have a crack and interpreting it yourself. Um, Because basically what they found on this site, we had this this elongated pit that had been backfilled, uh, like following this use, uh, and the backfill contained... uh, Pig remains, among other things, there was also like charred uh, hazelnuts, I believe, and also heat cracked stone. But what was very interesting about it is that the actual edges and the base of the feature, as you can see in the photo, uh, have gone red. And that's something that clay does when it's been exposed to heat. So this feature, when it had been uh, initially cut out, uh, had been exposed, like the burning was happening in that pit in a way that it reached all the way to the sides and the base and they've turned the clay sort of that sort of pinkish red um, that sort of indicates that it's been exposed to heat. Um, Therefore, what the interpretation has been that this pit had been cut out to roast either like most or an entire animal um, and then had been backfilled with sort of the debris that had been caused by the event. So you'd have the stones that were also heat exposed because they've they've been cracked. Also, another thing that stone likes to do, it also likes to turn red depending on the geology of it, um, which would have been sort of in the fire with the coals. Uh, so it's been backfilled with that, and then the leftover of the shell, the um, the hazelnuts and the pig remains, and sort of the whole feature has been then covered up. Um, but another interesting feature that was found adjacent to it. Uh, was one that has been interpreted as a windbreak uh, that was on the southwest side of this pit. Um, so the theory here is that maybe yeah, this windbreak was put there to control the level of oxygen going in and out of the fire pit. Um, so um, from here, so like a, again, one of the sort of gener- general theories on the use of the feature that's been put forward, um, the idea of uh, this layering technique, because the sort of the shape um, and uh, say profile of the feature is uh, very reminiscent, apparently, of uh, a typical Maori roasting technique. Um, apparently what uh, some Maori do is that um, so they'll have a pit which would have then a layer of you know hot coals and then a thin layer of soil on top followed by a layer of leaves in their case banana leaves but um, I guess in the Bronze Age it would have been substituted for something that would have been available in the surrounding area which then at the top you get the meat which is usually either most of an animal or an entire animal so that's a case in which um, 
they've been, uh, you know, we've been looking at um, sort of evidence in the ethnographic record to interpret things that we find on archaeological sites. So I guess this uh, this um, excavation by Rubicon Heritage is a very good example of that, also like where uh, ethno-archaeology sort of and sort of field archaeology meet. Yeah, and it's a really good example of how ethno-archaeology, which kind of to explain it a little bit more in case uh, some listeners don't know, it's uh, ethno-archaeology is using ethnographic materials. So kind of materials that are, you know, from interviews with uh, other communities or, you know, oral or written texts uh, about certain things uh, from the people who actually did those things, uh, you, you kind of using that as part of our interpretations um, when we're interpreting the past. And it's this is a really good example of how I think without that kind of uh, ethnographic information, uh, I, I don't know how anyone could uh, kind of decipher the idea of roasting pigs with this kind of layering technique. And uh, another thing that I actually find really interesting about this is one of the ways they kind of deciphered this uh, is by looking at the pig remains that actually were in uh, this excavation. They had a really distinct coloration on the bones, due to the intense heat from cooking. Uh, so one thing that you can kind of find out uh, depending on what the bones look like uh, and if they've been uh, burnt in any way, um, the coloration can be correlated with different temperatures. Uh, so you get, uh, you know, usual kind of black burning uh, coloration to like a, a white chalky uh, blue-gray kind of color. Uh, it's really interesting uh, kind of stuff. But yeah, seriously. I was wondering, actually, because um, you, you mentioned a specific uh, coloration that was found uh, within this pit. Uh, was it actually specified sort of what color, what temperature the bones would have been exposed to? Uh, I, I don't believe they were in this particular case, but I would assume that if it's intense heat from cooking, it's probably more on the kind of like white ish coloration that like chalky white color but uh again uh, if that's wrong anyone from uh rubicon heritage please feel free to uh correct me on twitter or something <laughs> but seriously everyone listening has to look at the illustration of what they think this looks like it's extremely cool and i love it um but yeah and um, that was all of our case studies Is there anything else you want to say about pigs simona before we take it to the close no, I think you should probably have your dinner now. Oh, yeah, I'm so hungry. Hilariously enough, I believe I'm having chili for dinner tonight. Oh, chili. Another thing What's that doesn't chili? exist in the Archeonimals uh, universe. Our, our, our deep lore. <laughs> Things that don't exist. Just wait until somebody makes squirrel chili. That, that'll be the day. Oh. That's probably good, <laughs> no. to be honest. <laughs> I was I was hoping actually you'd have something pork related. That would be like the icing on the cake, you know. Like you go and you just you'd have to make a bacon sandwich. I actually this is a, a like this is a decent question. So bacon sandwich, Alex, what goes on a bacon sandwich? What's your kind of like if you were to give, be given one, what, how would you stack it? Uh, lettuce and tomato, duh. Oh, BLT. A BLT, a very, very but also choice. with a bit of guacamole as the like 
filler. I'm very American. Guac- Guacamole. Black BLT. Black wow. BLT. Baby. Love it. <laughs> I-, I disagree. Cause if bacon is good, you don't need anything else. Ooh. Wow. Would you even have bread, Simona? <laughs> Could you imagine yeah. just a fistful of bacon? <laughs> just like, yeah, I can imagine it. That was like my mouth. Sunday afternoon. <laughs> uh, just shoving it in your mouth. I love it. Bacon and brie. Mm, that is pretty good. All right, oh, we need so to quite English. Yeah, sorry. We need to get to the that end because I might die if I hear more about food. <laughs> uh, but this has been Archeo Animals. Uh, make sure you contact us on Twitter. We're at Archeo Animals. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback about the episodes. Uh, you can yell at me if you want. Uh, thankfully, no one has yelled at me about never seeing a squirrel before, and I appreciate that. Um, you can. Also, you know, find us on Facebook at Archeo Animals. Uh, be sure to share the episode with people. Let them know uh, that we have a very good archaeology podcast. I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, definitely uh, leave us a review on iTunes uh, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps out the show. And uh, I think that's it. <laughs> Have a nice evening slash morning slash day slash whatever time you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that was our show then. Bye. I'm going to go eat so much food now. Bye. listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh.